I'm sick of lessons learned. How stupid are we that we got to keep learning the same lesson over and people keep writing this in their thing and, and you pull it out it's like, wait, we relearned it from five years ago? It's like, stop, stop, learn something. Welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. As always, if you like what we're doing, give us a positive rating and follow our social media pages for more content. You can also follow today's podcast guest on Twitter, at Pete's Trauma Man. In this episode, we interview Dr. Jeffrey Upperman. Dr. Upperman was recently appointed as the Surgeon-in-Chief of Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. Prior to that, he served at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and received recognition as an expert in trauma, disaster preparedness, and injury prevention. Upperman is a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Medical Corps and was chief of surgery during Operation Iraqi Freedom II. He serves as a sworn member of the National Advisory Committee for Children in Disasters. Upperman has published over 180 peer-reviewed publications, 200 abstracts, and 20 book chapters. His research includes sepsis, inflammation, trauma, and disaster preparedness. He is happily married to his wife of 26 years, who is also a physician, and has three sons. In this episode, we discuss his background playing sports, his journey to pediatric surgery, excellent performance, disaster preparedness, and more. We hope you enjoy this episode of Leading the Rounds. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we're so excited to have Dr. Jeffrey Upperman on the show. But before we get started, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. It's a little little bit cold and it's dedicated, but I'm chugging along and I'm excited for this interview. Good. That's great. Staying positive. I'm trying. Dr. Upperman, how are you doing today? Well, I just came out of a budget meeting. That's up there with... Uh that's up there with uh, enemas and constipation, <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of the top three things in life and living. <laughs> but hopefully, uh, hopefully this will go well for you and then you'll have the night to relax after this. Anything left for, for your day? As they say, this too shall pass. Uh, you know, I got my walk <laughs> home today, so we got about three or four inches down here in Nashville, Tennessee. And as they tell me here at Vanderbilt, it happens. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> I thought it was the middle South. What's going on here? <laughs> My girlfriend and I drove, we're from Michigan and we drove back from St. Louis yesterday. And so we were in the car through the whole s- snowstorm. It was pretty brutal to be honest. We didn't think, I-, I always thought St. Louis was a more Southern state, but it's been, it was freezing there. It's pretty oh, Midwest. It's kind of like North Hawaii. It's right. North <laughs> Hawaii, probably. Sim- similar environs, you know, North yeah. side of the Island, you know, <laughs> brutal there. Yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to start off the interview just asking you to give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself. What brought you into medicine? What brought you into pediatric surgery? Sure. So I was born and raised in New Jersey, public high school product. I was track athlete, wanted to go to the Olympics one day. And um, but I always had this voice in the back of my mind, basically telling me that I was going to be a doctor. My mom told me and shared with me when I was five years of age, she was a nurse worked in a local community hospital. And, and I recall one day she says, you're going to be a doctor. And I used to sort of laugh and smile. And here I am. 
Were there any formative moments that you've had between your high school experience and throughout college that you kind of solidified that for you that really drove you into a career of medicine? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say drove. I, I, I think I went through it all thinking pre-med, pre-med, pre-med. Uh, my dad was a, a housing contractor, painted houses. So all the guys had to learn how to work with their hands and do things. And so I guess if you put a nurse and a housing contractor together, you do get a surgeon. But uh, as I was going through, I, I would almost say injury brought me to the realization that I needed a day job. I trained really hard from the ninth grade on, and I was really committed to this Olympic dream. Uh, but once I got to college as a recruited D1 athlete and started getting into the grind, I had some injuries. And I said, wow, I guess I really have to do pay attention to class. And oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be a doctor, that thing. OK, so <laughs> what does it mean to be a pre-med? I figure all that out. And um, it was hard. It was hard making that transition because school had really been a, a means to an end as opposed to the opposite. And, and so as I got going, uh, things just started to click. I, I was at a summer program at uh, New Jersey Medical School and, and that really opened my eyes to the time frame that I could go to medical school because I thought I was gonna have to do some other things before getting back. And, and then I just jumped in and um, realized that, you know, surgery was like a sport and scrubs were like your uniform and uh, I was I was sold. So I, I signed on pretty much middle of my third year to go into surgery. It wasn't really until my research years as a general surgeon that I decided to do pediatric surgery. Something I wanna ask you about is that sports background and you kinda alluded to it there when you said surgery is kinda like a sport, but how did that sports background and track and if you played anything else contribute to your decision of being a surgeon and then also, how you approach surgery now. So, Caleb, I want you to not blink your eyes and take your eyes off the monitor. You can't hurt me. You cannot <laughs> hurt me. Okay. okay. So, my brother was my track coach in high school. We did this. If you all have done any running, we did. I was a sprinter. And we had every Monday, we had to do interval work. Meaning we had to run 600 meters, 10 of them with like some ridiculous short rest period. And um, vomiting was the standard of the day. And, <laughs> you know, after going through a series of Mondays, you just face the realization that you cannot be hurt. You just really physically can't be hurt. So that that was kind of my mantra. Once I got to the floors, I mean, in residency, I mean, we didn't have 80 hours of work week and all of that. And, you know, wellness and sleepiness, all that, all that stuff is unhealthy. But my mindset all throughout that process was I can't be hurt. And so I never let any physical part of it uh, really get to me. And so I was mentally tough, which really allowed me to get through all the discipline you need for surgery, because it's just a different deal. I, I tell people, I tell students on service quite openly, I say, it's like the Marines. I mean, there's no way, shape around it. You can't just sort of dial it in. It's nine o'clock at night. You can't say, eh, you know, I'll be back tomorrow. No, you, you just got to you know, cowboy up and get it done. Have you ever read any of David's, David Goggins' work? Anyway, you almost sound like you're quoting him. Just the, the don't no. hurt, you can't hurt me part. No, no, no. Okay, no. okay. He but, has a, he, he, he was a, a Marine and, and yeah. he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. Yeah, and it's basically yeah, the same, yeah. similar things that you're saying. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I think our four fathers mostly, and there were some four mothers out there as well, 
that they never really codified that marineness part of it. And so there were some unhealthy things, no denying that at all. But there were some elements of it that really were foundational in terms of your commitment to the patients, your commitment to a system and excellence and all those things. But it really wasn't codified. And so when the feds came in and said, boom, this is the law, you got to do this, you got to, you know, folks were kind of caught with the proverbial, you know, administrative educational pants down and had to retrofit in what it meant to be a surgeon and do surgical training. So we had always had the deficit, for instance, that how many times do I need to land a plane to be competent in landing a plane? And then there's landing a plane in ad adverse weather. Well, in surgery, does it mean you do 40 gallbladders and you're expert in gallbladder surgery? Maybe you, you have hand-eye coordination and you're gifted and it takes 10, maybe it takes 20. We never codified that in a reasonable way. And so now we're stuck in a process and in most cases, just a gross number. And it's like, you showed up 40 times. We hope and pray that everybody basically is telling the truth when they say that you're competent to do this. But there's nothing that, you know, here's your flight record that accurately says that you can actually do this, which is quite surprising, right? Because when you think of National Football League, really not even just major college football teams, but all college, even high school, they do more film review than surgeons do. That's crazy. That's crazy. So there's a lot of work that we have to do. And I think this, this uh, system that we're existing now is actually a good thing in the sense that it's forcing us to look at some fundamentals and get back to some fundamentals in terms of our education process. So where has the line kind of been drawn that you're balancing between like the old ways and the new ways of, um, you know, not work, overworking and keeping your, your mental health okay, but also embodying and pursuing excellence as a surgeon? Where, where do you kind of like find the, and strike that balance? So um, I've used this line with a number of my mentees and other students and medical students who are considering it. And often students come to me and they say, I really, really love surgery. I think it's fun, but I lifestyle. So like, well, what do you mean by that? Lifestyle. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I said, all right, let me give you an example and you tell me who has a lifestyle. So you're a trauma surgeon, you work in an inner city hospital and you work a 12 hour shift. You come in seven o'clock in the morning and at 7 p.m. you clock out, you go home, you're done. All right, case number two, you're a family practice doc in rural, you name it, Idaho, Southwest Dakota, you have a catchment area of 3000 miles, you have 500 patients, you're the only doctor within that time frame and it's just you in a single practitioner deal lifestyle so you mean people in the middle of the night don't come banging on your door say bobby has chest pain or pop wally has this or that and and you have to call and get a locum's tenants to come in to give you two weeks of respite a year is that a balanced life yeah well it's not well what is it though you're kind of on all the time aren't you you kind of have to make accommodations to leave the area, don't you? Unless you just abandon your community, I, I guess you could do that. So it, it, we got to be careful. I mean, it, you know, we talk about surgery and folks are like, oh, surgery is so rough as this. I know people who do breast surgery and it's like they operate two or three days a week. They have breast clinic uh, for the fifth day. And what breast problem is coming in in the middle of the night? I know there's that case for those who are listening. But most of the time, you're not getting waking up in the middle of the night saying, you know, we have this breast 
thing in the ED <laughs> that you need to come in at two o'clock in the morning and deal with. It's, you know, it's not going to happen. So there are things within surgery that you can do that could be on the extreme of trauma or on the elective case of breast surgery that you're still a surgeon, but you have control in your lifestyle. Or you could be in a position where you're the breast surgeon and you're trying to cover 15 hospitals in your community. You're getting home 10 o'clock at night because you're in private practice and you're working really hard to put food on the table and do all these things. And, you know, and so that your husband is happy and, and that you're, you know, it, it's, it's complicated. You control your lifestyle though, but you really don't get to make, you know, boatloads of money and also sit at home all the time. You just don't get to do that. So there are choices that you have to make. And I often say to people who are really energetic and want to go after it, it's like, look, just understand that you're gonna, your life is going to be unbalanced. And you need to figure out what that unbalance is. In every given moment, there may be some unbalance. But I can count probably on one hand the number of events that I've missed to my three boys when they were young in the sort of Christmas play and recitals and all those things it sounds to me like you're saying you make time for what's important which is something that i've heard as well when people talk about you know lifestyle of surgeons and those who are in um, very stressful and and high time commitment careers absolutely i i don't think our life is any different than our friends who are you know high rollers on wall street right i mean we all have them right or high rollers in some law group or high rollers in some you know, very intense uh, petrol engineering firm and they have to, you know, bring in numbers for whatever. I mean, they're putting in crazy hour days. I mean, they're no different than us. Something that I want to ask you about as far as performance goes, I'm, I'm interested in sports performance and, and kind of chasing that excellence that you mentioned. And something I see with surgery that I, I, I'm interested in going into surgery, but something that I worry about is in residency, the focus on uh, sleep and the focus on recovery as an aspect of performance. So for example, in athletics now, there's so much research being done now that you know sleep and rest is just as important to performing at a high level as pushing and as training. And I think with surgery, you know, there's sleep studies that if you're you know sleep deprived for up to 18 hours, your cognition is the level of somebody who's intoxicated. And so I'm interested to see your opinion on that and, and sleep as a driver of performance and how that kind of conflicts with a resident, you know, being on call for 24 hours and having to operate at all, all times of the day. Well, I'm going to make it even more complicated for you because folks often throw that out there as if it's the job that consumes your uh, wakefulness. Okay. So, Let's add to it. So you're a young family, you're a young dad, you get home and your partner basically says, now it's your turn to start changing the diapers. And you're like, I've been in the hospital since five o'clock in the morning, it's seven o'clock at night. Was like, <laughs> your, ba your baby too. So baby's cutting teeth. You're up all night. You're not doing nothing to do with work. And you got five hours sleep. You got four hours sleep. We sent you home at the correct time. You were in the workplace at the correct time. Your baby your responsibility, your life, it's unbalanced. And so it's hard to get into the sleep dialogue because there's other reasons that may contribute to your fatigue. And so when we start doing that, right? So your brand new dad 
you were doing your thing to support, you come in and you start looking sleepy or you just have a look, you want me to send you home? How many days in a row you want me to send you home? Or you want to take off the first year of life or first two years of life or the kid because it's, it's, it's grueling, it's tiring. What decision are you going to make? Is a system set up for that? It's not, not now. And so it's a tough, it's, it's really a tough conversation that we often focus all on, are you getting killed in the workplace? But there are other things that young people are involved in that could contribute to them being fatigued. So are there things that we can do though as a workplace to make it uh, reasonable? I mean, I think when we first started having these conversations, I thought that, okay, yeah, but why don't we just mandate that they're driving services that you don't even get to drive post-call as an example, you know, let's just, yep. focus, let's just focus on safety. Let's, you know, let's have, uh, you know, call rooms that look like Taj Mahal's that, you know, you really can get, you know, with all the bells and whistles that help for true restfulness, you know, when you're on call, uh, let's devise systems that if you have to rest in the hospital, you can truly rest in the hospital and, and devise mechanisms. The challenge is, is that you have a couple of things. Do you dilute experience? You have to balance that. So, right, if we say for you, again, we just have numbers. So if you have to get 800 cases done over a five-year clinical period, and we say, you know what, really, we believe in this sleep thing. Okay, so now let's, let's do 800 cases over 10 years. You're sitting there in medical school like, what? You get some rest though. You'll be rested. So it's it's unequal balance and it's managing the cost benefits of a system that really pays attention to some of those things. No easy answers for you. Of course, wouldn't expect it. I know. And I've read that you you spent some time in the military as a as a military doctor, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Has um has is your time in the military affected your perspective on this whole debate? See, Peter, I could be crazy, right? You could have just triggered me. Now now I just go out to the emergency room flipping over tables or anything, man. Man, come on, you're supposed to be a clinician in training, man. You should yeah, trigger right. me into, <laughs> I'm all on my PTSD <laughs> well, well I met, I met seriously, most... <laughs> seriously, seriously. Yes, I did. I as a resident, as a resident and he's laughing. <laughs> I feel bad now. <laughs> as a resident, uh, my wife, by the way, takes care of veterans and uh, our vets. The, you know, if you come across vets, first of all, thank them, and two, mm -hmm. remember that the, the war that we're involved in now is the longest conflict ever in the history of this union, ever. And we just go on watching Netflix. But it's really, really crazy. So if you come across a vet, in particular a new vet, just understand how crazy it is for their mm -hmm. life. But that being said, yeah, I joined back in um, the early 90s as a resident. I had always wanted to serve the country. People always ask me, oh, you're on a scholarship. I always ask, so what's the price of a bullet? <laughs> how much is that, you know? What's, what's that loan look like? You know, it's like, oh, you know, thousand dollars per bullet. You know, I'm good, I'm good, you know. No, there's, there's no price that would be reasonable for a scholarship. Now that, yeah, there are a few people who probably signed that dotted line and got shipped somewhere. Like, well, I didn't sign up for all this, but you did. You signed up to put the green suit on. 
So I was deployed to Iraq. I spent some time there. I was a chief of surgery at a, at a forward operating base. And, and it was interesting. I mean, it reminded me a lot of what we used to take care of in Newark, New Jersey, at New Jersey Medical School, where I did my general surgery training. The uh, younger soldiers used to always ask, have you ever seen like that? I said, unfortunately, we see a lot of bad things in urban trauma. So that is not surprising. That was caused by IED. This was caused by somebody who had problems on the block, but seen it before. So it, it was... It wasn't life-changing from a clinical perspective. It was life-changing from going into an operation or doing and worrying about your own safety. That was, that was, yeah, I trained in Newark, New Jersey, but I never really crossed that line of being like, I don't feel safe being a doctor here. You know, there was just like, man, this is crazy. Was there anything about that experience that you felt prepared you coming back to civilian life and being a better surgeon or being a better physician? Yeah, I, I always went into medicine. Once I figured out, yeah, mom said I was going to be a doctor of five. You remember that? And I knew along the way that I, I wanted to do administrative medicine and be involved in running healthcare systems. Uh, and really, you know, my life's mission was to improve the health of people. Now you say, wait, I thought you were in child health. I am. But my life's mission is to improve the health of people. And so that could end me up in, you know, a, a state government's administration, a federal government's administration, or it could be, you know, the CEO of Kaiser or something. I mean, it, it, it's finding the right platform to be able to do that. And so here at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, the Monroe Cow Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, I am able to, as surgeon in chief, have an impact on a broader set of issues that are impactful to the lives of children and families in Middle Tennessee and the greater Southeastern United States. And, and so it's a bigger platform and it allows me to be a force multiplier here. So I learned a lot about bureaucracy with my military time. And so it's sort of added to that, that learning. And of course you have the usual things of leadership and command and control and running for your life and you know ducking and those things, you know. <laughs> Probably don't do too much of that nowadays. Maybe maybe during your budget meeting, you might have ducked and dodged <laughs> a little bit. But <laughs> Well, sometimes you just have to go hand to hand and you just got to go off book. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that we read in your background is that you've done some work in disaster preparedness. Yeah. Tell, a little, tell us a little bit about how you got into that. Well, uh, one of the things, one of my... Uh, professors, mentors uh, in uh, residency, Dave Livingston, who is the, uh, uh, the chief of trauma there. At one point, we were talking about research projects, whatever, and he says, uh, when you're in certain environments, you need to understand how to make lemonade. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, we're in the middle of Newark. I'm going to study what's here around me. I'm not going to feel that I need to study what they're studying in Boston or in Philadelphia or in San Francisco. I'm going to study what's here and have an impact here on this community. And so that was always sort of a voice in the back of my mind. And so when my previous boss made the jump from Pittsburgh to Los Angeles, you know, I was recruited to join him there and I had just actually returned from Iraq and I was just like, yeah, let's go dude, we're gonna go <laughs> serve, yeah. My wife was just like, <laughs> She was like, hold on camper, you know, you just got back from war. That's, you know, being at the end of a phone call. I mean, this is serious stuff. I mean, the phone rings and you don't know if it's that call. I, and 
and you have no awareness coming back to that pressure that's there. So it took a period of time. Actually, that was around time I was recruited here along that year wait. And then eventually we ended up in Los Angeles. And, um, and so the question then came, um, what to do, what's gonna be my differentiating point for my boss. We are studying similar biomedical things. I was working lab and all these things. And uh, I knew the plan was to go be the trauma medical director there. And so there was a grant for disaster. I said, all right, a disaster is like, you know, trauma on speed. Let's, you know, write it up. So I looked at it and talked to some people in LA even before I left. And we put this proposal in, didn't get funded, kept talking to the same people. And it was about two or three years later, ended up hitting on a $5 million grant to look at pediatric emergency preparedness. That started it all, you know, after two, two and a half years of mad, crazy work and doing all kinds of connections, crisscrossing the nation, et cetera, 90 publications, you know, other grants. I mean, we ended up writing the surge capacity plan for Los Angeles County for children. It was on multiple panels. Matter of fact, my H factor is the H index is blowing up now because about eight years ago was on a number of panels uh, and we wrote uh, these publications on pandemic and pandemics in the title. And it's just, it's, it's going out of control. So I, I encourage you, if you're working with folks and doing some research, put pandemic in the title. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> just get virus pandemic in the, can, you know, in the title. I mean, it's hot right now. It, it'll be a stretch to put COVID in everything, but if you put pandemic as a keyword, just slide it in when you get a manuscript together, slide pandemic in as a keyword. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you look at, if you go to Google Scholar, I've had more references in the last calendar year than ever in my career. Mm. But uh, that's how I kind of got into it, writing a grant and then learning more and more about it. So it's been a great run. And have you really, have you enjoyed kind of working in the disaster preparedness space? Yeah, it, it kind of is a good mind meld for me. Uh, I'm I'm a what ifer by, by just birthright. I'm always... Mm -hmm thinking strategically about things and what if this, do we have contingencies for this? And I'm not one to say, well, you just mentally think about stuff all the time. No, it's not, it's not really about that. It's really about figuring out what matters and then having a plan, but also having the plan B and C if parameters change. And so it's been exciting uh, sort of living that out uh, it's fascinating to hear the news with all the current events you've heard about COVID over the last year of your, your training. And to know that a lot of these things, when people say unprepared, this is unprepared because they want to read. I mean, we wrote and talked about a lot of this stuff and a lot of folks have talked about pandemic. This is not the first pandemic. I mean, we wrote those initial papers really in reaction to H1N1. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously different, but some of those same guiding principles are, are here now. So. And as someone who works in this space, who is kind of a little more studied on, on disaster preparedness, was there anything that you felt was never done or missed that seemed so blatantly obvious to you that, you know, that we should have done better in regards to COVID? You really asking me that question? Yeah, <laughs> I feel like not, it's slowing. I feel like slowing. Now this conversation is now, now. Now this conversation is just turned. You know, it's just it's, it's just gotten real. All you know, here we go. It's now the alt the alt show. You know, it's just here we go. There are a lot of decisions that a lot of people could have made over a lot of periods of times. You know, in the last let's just say four or five years, a lot of decisions. You know that. 
we as a nation could have made. Let's just leave it there. You know, it's um, a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I have friends who are in various federal agencies. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't even put it past them to have like undershirts to say deep state, but they um, are basically, they're, they're good people. They are solid Americans really trying to get it right. And it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a bureaucracy that's intentionally built the way it is with checks and balances that you just can't go off and do stuff. It, it has to be driven by laws, which then stipulate regulations and these things have to happen. And, and, and so what you've been able to see play out over the last year is the whole notion of what a command and control structure looks like or what it doesn't look like, depending on what jurisdiction you wanna focus in on. And so some of the fundamentals of emergency preparedness is it's on one level a conversation on jurisdictionally how a system operates. Then on another level, you've been filled with data, more data that you ever needed to know about viral proteins, right? There's that bench science part. And now we're back to things that have to deal with jurisdictions and, and communities and population health and and being able to mobilize disbursement of things. Those are all things that, again, we don't get a lot of training in medical school, but those are the types of things that I thought a lot about over the last 10 years or so. And um, some military, some, some of it's just common sense, but it's hard work because again, laws and rules stipulate some of those things. Now I know COVID is predominantly um, a pathogen that affects older adults most severely. But what I'm wondering is, in Vanderbilt's response to the pandemic, were you in charge of deciding, you know, what some of the rules and regulations were as far as the virus? Or did that not quite fall in your field uh, with pediatrics? Well, first of all, I, I mean, the work that I did in preparedness, it, it's age independent. Um, you know, yes, I take care of children all the time. I'm a surgeon. And some would even argue like, what's he doing in the room? What's, what's the surgeon doing in the room? We, do we ask for surgery? I mean, <laughs> is this a mass casualty? Do we ask? I mean, I was on an Institute of Medicine panel looking at the prophylaxis for anthrax. Let, the, let that work around in your mind. Mm -hmm. A surgeon sitting around the table and we're talking about this crazy bug and bioterror. I mean, for the first meeting or so, I was, I was even wondering until I asked a question that was hospital-based. And so as a trauma medical director and someone who understands systems as it relates to trauma, it was easy for me to translate that understanding to how hospitals could respond, react, and interact with the community. So for instance, um, the case here, I, I was new. And so they're like, new guy, what's new guy I have to offer here? And it was a lot of bright ideas I had. So, you know, things happen so fast. So let's run back to timeline. A week or two, before case one hits, tornado, right? North Nashville, it like knocked out our supply building, literally, literally. Wow. And I just took it upon myself. I walked over to the command center, sat down, and, and then they were going around the table looking at stuff. And it turns out that I was admitting from that table, the first victim, because they needed somebody to accept patients because how they had set up things. So, so I immediately inserted myself into it when the pandemic came, it, it, it had a different set of kinetics, how it developed. It was very different. And it was as I expected it would be. 
that the source would be infection and therefore people would say infectious disease needs to run the show. The problem is infectious disease doctors, they understand a piece of it, but as you well know, they got just as much mask wearing, wash your hands training as, as you or I did. I mean, there's no, you know, oh yeah, that's Dr. Smith. He's a maskologist. He looks at the fiber <laughs> of a mask. He's written several things and he has a two mask theory that is really hot. You know? <laughs> I mean, and so it was like, who's who knows anything in this area? So it, it's really always been a team sport as it relates to that. So I've done some things. I set up a team within our periop space and officer surgeon chief here at Children's. Our team actually uh, devised a system for um, uh, reusing the uh, mask and doing the UV sterilization. We built a system in-house uh, that we're using early on in the deal. We worked through a system of how to get people asymptomatic testing and, and a number of team members worked on that really hard. And so I, I, I tried to apply my key learnings and things that I knew to the area of operation that I could control. And I lended expertise when asked for and, and, you know, sent people things and, you know, and I was fine with that. You know, it, I, I think the Pete's thing was like, oh, he's a Pete's guy. I'm like, all right, well, I'm good. <laughs> On the opposite side of things, was there anything about working through the pandemic that changed your perspective on disasters and disaster preparedness? Not at all. I mean, as we still deal with this, it's, it's some of these things are not very surprising to me. I, I think that um, I theoretically have talked about some of these things, uh, and I'll give you an example. You know, I, I've done some public speaking, and I said, um, you know, as we work our way through it, and I said, you know, H1N1, people kind of think, yeah, hey, what it is like the flu or whatever. I said. I said, I bet you at the presentation of disease, whatever that disease is, is that somehow you catch it and within a, a, a 10 minute period, all of a sudden you're pooping blood and you just faint and fall out. You know, cause we, we used to talk about the willingness of healthcare workers to help out in a, in, a, in a disaster. I said, if that was the presenting sign and symptoms, I said, I bet you'd have to figure out some ways to get some healthcare workers to help support it. Now, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag with, uh, with uh, you know, COVID-19 because, you know, it's kind of impacting people like that, but it's also kind of insidious, right? You kind of have, right. you know, because the storyline is, yeah, but you got a disease, you get it, you're really going to get sick. But if you're healthy, you know, I'm a healthy nurse, whatever, it's not really going to impact me. It's like, yeah, but you, you probably shouldn't breathe in five trillion parts per million in a given work period, you know, and, you know, and that's tough. I mean, you know, it's really tough. So what we've learned is what you've all see play out that um, masks probably matter. We're not seeing any seasonal flu. I mean, so since we're not seeing seasonal flu, does that mean we're going to keep wearing masks? We'll see. Yeah. Who knows? I, I don't think I'll fly again without wearing a mask. I'll tell you yeah. straight up. I, I mean, mm -hmm. if, if it has that impact and it seems meaningful, at least on that level, I don't know if I'm trying to go to the spot with a mask on, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, well, you know, you get the bling on it. I guess you get the bling. You just, you know, but, uh, all, all black. You know, just all black. And just, you know, like a print symbol over there, you know. Like, and don't say anything at all. Don't say anything. Talk to my wife. I don't speak. 
So, so something I'm wondering is, as the pandemic's progressed, there's been so many things written about, you know, lessons learned. What's something that you think people haven't really talked about that's been a lesson learned? Caleb, man, I, I'm going to tell you right now. I, and I have been a guest editor on editions looking at um, preparedness papers and all that. But if I was the guest editor of the or the editor of a disaster journal or a trauma journal or whatever, if you put lessons learned in your title, I can tell you right now, <laughs> it would get sent back so fast because that whole, I'm sick of lessons learned. How stupid are we that we got to keep learning the same lesson over it and people keep writing this in their thing and, and you pull it out. It's like, wait, we relearned it from five years ago. It's like, stop. Stop, learn something. Stop, keep learning the same thing. Learn something. And if you just type in lesson learned now, I mean, there's so many lessons learned. I mean, people should have a PhD for their PhD in preparedness. I mean, there's so many lessons learned. So I, I'm not a fan of that word. I think- All right, well, well, let me change the question then. No, 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 I'll, I'll answer you. I'll answer, <laughs> I'll answer. I mean, the, the reality is, is that our, our information communication systems and sharing is probably piss poor. So if the state of Rhode Island is recognizing something, there should probably be a rapid way that South Dakota understands that and has easy access to it. So that's why the Hopkins database, I think, was really important. I think that some of these um, public open source databases were really important. I mean, to a certain degree, that's why social media in its appropriate dose is actually important because you have situational awareness that otherwise you wouldn't have. Now, the question is, how do you use it and could it be healthy enough for important things? Well, we've seen that experiment play out. So not so much at times. What are you gonna ask me? I was gonna say, not, if, if we're finally realizing that we learned all these lessons, how do we not have this happen again to where we forget in five years, like you mentioned? How do we maintain that? And then the talk show goes back to that question again. <laughs> well, we as Americans, if we continue to pay attention to certain things and in four years when we have decisions to make, if we kind of keep our eye on those decisions, then hopefully we don't have decisions made that uh, lead us back to learning our lesson all over again. Something you were talking about was the um, availability of public and reliable databases. And one thing, so one of my interests, non-scientific is communication and scientific communication and communicating it to lay people specifically. Because I feel like there's a lot of education that goes into being able to understand basic science. And without that education, it's very easy to misinterpret something. So I'm wondering, where where does where does the miscommunication happen in in your opinion? Like what 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 should and shouldn't be available to the layperson? Well, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. I mean, clearly at the bedside, the onus is really on us to communicate to our family. So one of the reasons that I thought that early on in the work hours, and I'll, I'll get to your question, but let me mm -hmm. set it up right to get to the work hours piece, they actually, at one point, I, I had been in presence of a number of uh, national thought leaders who thought that surgery residents need to be pulled off of the subspecialty rotations because they were just being used as fodder and they weren't really learning anything. And, and I really 
fought hard at a couple means I went to the microphone. I said, that's absolutely not true. I said, when you come to a pediatric subspecialty rotation, such as pediatric general surgery, the key competency, in my opinion, for our rotation is communication because you're always communicating for the most part with surrogates. Teenagers, it's a little bit more blended. I don't have conversations with two-year-olds. I have a conversation with an eight-year-old. I have conversations with parents. I talk to adults all the time. And so I play with kids, you have conversations with adults. And so even those adults have limited understanding and they also bring to the table this thing. It's my child. I know it's your child. That's why you're sitting here. If it wasn't your child, you get arrested. I mean, it's your child. <laughs> I get that. But as we're trying to, you know, so you have to show compassion to this person who cares about this little person. So there's a technique to that. And sometimes communicating very, very scientifically heavy things means that you have to rely on other tools to do it. So one of the tools, I'm a visual learner. So I draw pictures. I have pictures on my iPhone. I have pictures that I use on the iPad and I draw pictures to try to get them to the point where they at least have a, a basic understanding. But the second half of your question really comes down to public health. And that's what, you know, Dr. Fauci has been doing now for the last year or so, right? Actually, he's been doing it most of his career in trying to take a complicated scientific phenomena or a set of phenomena and make it understandable for the lay public. What was the challenge? We all know what the challenge was that given social media and other platforms in a 24 hour news cycle, you got a lot of other credible voices that could bark similar, same, different. And now, even though they were in terms that our families could understand at a basic level, they could be competing messages. And so it wasn't a matter of it being at a lay level. It was a matter of now credibility. And that is, that's, that's a tough thing. That's tough because that almost goes beyond communication per se. That, that, that credibility factor is, is something that that's going to be a tough nut to pay attention to from now on out. I guess the other side of this is also the, the person or the entity sending the message also has some other I guess I'll call it baggage, but I'm kind of referring to like a political leaning and and somehow their message becomes tied to a political ideology. And that gets then brought into the conversation as well, muddying things up for the layperson who's just trying to understand, like, how can I best care for myself and my family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's in a, some really bizarre way. It, it's it's like the ultimate product placement, except the mm -hmm. product happens to be your ideology that has nothing to do with the science per se. But then again, it has everything to do with the outcome that's associated with the science. Mm -hmm. Using your disaster preparedness background, what do you think about the maybe censoring of information as a way to promote the good voices instead of those who are spreading misinformation? So I think you have an a interesting perspective, you know, leaning to into disaster specifically. Yeah. As Caleb gets us to pivot into the cancer culture topic, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you all are in training. What you're learning now is probably going to mutate by the time you complete residency. 
and it will mutate by time you're five years into your practice and it'll mutate another, you know, and, and that mutation pattern will probably get shorter and shorter and shorter in its ability to mutate, right? Because the, the amount of knowledge that is being generated in a picosecond is, is just phenomenal. I mean, uh, Jim Crow, who's the pediatric infectious disease person here, he got blood from patient one in Seattle within days of them reporting that this person was infected. And literally by May, they were ready to go to production with vaccine. Get your head around the speed in which they generated information, knowledge to go to mass production, to go to clinical trials. Yeah, it's incredible. Those are the tools that we have. And that's, you know, I'm bragging on Vanderbilt. That was done right here at Vanderbilt University. But when you think about the speed in which all of these labs across the world could move to address this, you know, the, the lay public is just like, oh, it's too fast. No, they were actually set up to do this. They've been set up. And so when you talk about good information, not good information, I, this was a classic example. We were all learning about a pandemic as the pandemic was happening. And so you really needed to have dispassionate observers not leaning forwards or backwards, right? You needed them just to be, to adjudicate the data as they saw it and say, not necessarily good, bad, but efficacious, not efficacious, whatever. And the information that was communicated about that interpretation, that needed to be thoughtful. But the data itself was the data itself. And folks needed to say, and, and folks don't have, they don't deal well with probabilities. I mean, they just don't. I mean, they want mass, 100% effective. Not if it's here and your nose is poking out and nobody knows what the nose factor is. And come on. I had a mask on. Yeah, it was around your chin, dude. Do you think it's okay then for for scientists and physicians to say, you know, we don't know, and we think this is from our data. We think this is the best viable option right now, but we're still learning. I think we need a better line than I don't know. That's the truth, but I think we just need a better line. I, I'm, yeah. not gonna, I'm not going to argue that I know what that line is. I, I think it's context specific. Maybe, hi, Maybe. we're continuing to learn. Well, what is that as an answer? I'm continuing to learn. And I think that what I understand right now is that you're jacked up. <laughs> I was thinking something more along the lines of, I don't know yet. They don't know freaks people out because then they're thinking like, <laughs> That's true, yeah. well, I'm, well, I'm good enough. This guy doesn't know. I don't know. <laughs> you went to school all these years and I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. We're equal. <laughs> you know, you, you'll face this, right? I mean, you, you know, it happens right. to me all the time. You say, my brother took, you know, biology for a year. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much like surgery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. You know, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, it's, so I want to bring up one last thing, and this is because um, you tweeted out a really awesome article yesterday titled How to Excel at Both Strategy and Execution. I mm. read it last night. I thought it was, it was excellent. And um, I wanted to know, with, given your unique experience as someone in disaster preparedness, as a physician, as a physician leader, what is something that you wanted to add to that article um, 
to help us in the future as young leaders and, and the young leaders listening to be better strategists and better executioners for when that's, I guess that's the wrong word for it. But better, wow. <laughs> I'm just, this is just not, this is not my episode today. As we pivot to. <laughs> as better, as better as leaders who can strategize and execute. There you, is there go, you would like to add, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just off today. This is not my, this is not my show guys. Dedicated is really getting good. <laughs> I think uh, the way to perform at a high level, as well as to come up with ways to get you there, I think it takes practice. Mm -hmm. And and so I I was attracted to that article because there's certain elements of my behaviors are that are very strategic and, and planning and thinking. And then there's other elements that I'm very tactical. So I the terms I use are strategy and tactics. And so how you get it done I think is just as valuable as how you plan to get it done. And, and so I, I think, um, you know, both take practice and, and there's a time and place for both techniques. Well, thank you so much. One question we like to end our interview with is a few books that, that you love and would recommend to medical students and future medical leaders. Yeah, you guys did ask me that question. So <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't go there. So. Philippians is a really good read. It's okay. a really, really yeah. good, it's a good foundational text. It's a really, really good read. Um, you know, chapter four, verse 13, pff, bar nine. Um, not trying to exclude any ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, but, um, but if you look at sort of where uh, I am actually, uh, you know, our team is sponsoring a book club a quarterly book club we call it the surgeon achieves quarterly book club here at uh, vanderbilt children's center That's awesome so the first book we actually read was uh, humanocracy which was a good read uh, talked about uh, really in some ways smashing the bureaucracy and, and really encouraging the masses to innovate and to to lead within their spectrum and have voice in your organization it was really cool we actually had uh uh, the uh, author uh, actually uh, attend our, our Zoom uh, read. Uh, we're currently reading Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And so Kim Scott, if you're listening, we really, really want you to join us in this book club. So uh, good read as well. So those are the two things that are, you know, of the current reading, but uh, the old standard works too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We definitely enjoyed it. Love your sense of humor. And we all definitely learned a lot today. Thanks, Dr. Upperman. I appreciate you, Cable. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.